Welcome, this is Pastor Rick, and we are here today to think out loud about important things like faith. And faith is, as you know if you've been listening, faith is, the way we think about it, faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So I invite you to think along with us, and we're going to go through these ideas and think out loud about them here on America Out Loud. And in case I forget, I should mention it right now, that if you haven't gone to the AmericaOutloud.news website, I want to encourage you to do that. It's an important opportunity for you to see things you won't see typically in other places. You can be better informed by looking at some of these kinds of ideas. And I want to encourage you to go there. And while you're there, check out the store. I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I had gone to the store and purchased some products and I got them happy with them. You will be too. So go check that out on AmericaOutloud.news. And I was just checking that a few minutes ago and noticed something interesting that I had been thinking about talking about with all of us today. And, you know, faith covers the landscape. There's nothing in our world that God is not concerned about. There's nothing in our world that God does not look at as his. The earth is the Lord's and everything about it. And we need to remember that. And we need to take our perspective on confidence in God, our perspective on God, what it means to live out authentic Christian faith into every sector of our world. And so I want us to think about something that I've been involved in. I don't talk about it here very much. I don't want to get distracted from other things, but I want to also from time to time mention it because I think it's important that we as followers of Christ get involved in all kinds of things. And you've heard me talk about the importance of citizenship and how we need to be the best of citizens so that we can live out our faith in the world and have peaceable lives, not be bothered by the government interference in our Christian faith or other parts of our lives. That's the gift of freedom that was given to us as Americans and that God gave to us at the founding of our country. And you know, citizenship is not equivalent to politics. Now, sometimes people get them all confused, and I understand that. We live in a time when everybody is trying to call everything political. I I resist that, and I think you should too. We need to be much more specific about what is political and what isn't. And much of what is called political is simply being a good citizen. And if you fall for the trap of thinking things are political and therefore you withdraw from them, then I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but that means you aren't being a good citizen. We need to press through that nonsense idea that wants to marginalize you and me and everybody else who has a view of the world like us. We need to press through that trap and be the best of citizens and not be intimidated by Oh, that's political. You can't get involved in that. I just don't think that's right at all. I think that's a betrayal of God's gift to us. I hear lots of sincere Christians want to talk about how we shouldn't be involved or how we should not get concerned about things that are sometimes called, regularly called, usually called political. We need to think of ourselves as good citizens. Now, what do good citizens pursue? Now, we know that politicians pursue elected office. Nothing wrong with that. I had conversations recently with two pastors who are also elected representatives in Florida. They are members of the Florida House. 
That's great. I'm glad for that. I think that's a wonderful thing. God puts that on your heart to do that, do that. He hasn't put it on my heart. I don't expect that he will. But I'm glad that they're willing to serve at the call of God in that important place. It's a difficult thing. It's a challenging thing. But they are doing that because they want to be the best of citizens. From my discussions with them and hearing them speak, it sounds to me like they're pastors first and representatives second. Well, that's good. They can be both, but they express their pastoral concern far more robustly than their civic concern, although they carry that responsibility carefully and well. So that's a political thing that they've chosen to do. And sometimes good Christians need to be involved in the political process in order to help all of us pursue good citizenship. For most of us, our involvement will be because we want to be the best of citizens. And so we want to exercise proper biblical citizenship. It may mean that we're involved in the political process somehow. I have been. I don't get involved to be political. I get involved because I'm pursuing good citizenship. Now, what do I mean when I say good citizenship? And I think this is a very significant mind shift that we need to make. We need to think of citizenship as pursuing righteous government. We want the very best government, and we want government to be righteous. What's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that. Don't let anyone tell you that we as Christians should not pursue righteous government. We must do that. That's good citizenship. So I've been involved in that a little bit, and I think I've talked about it a little bit here. I'm not an elected person. I don't hold any elective office. I'm a citizen advocate, particularly focused on education reform in Florida. We want to help our children have the best education, and we want to bring solutions to the problems that surface in our public schools in Florida. We are attempting to empower parents and teachers, students, to get that best education. And so I've noticed some of the things that go on, and I participate in some things. And this last couple of weeks, I've been in Tallahassee twice, testifying before House committees on behalf of the HOPE Scholarship. It's a scholarship we have in Florida, and I'm not going to bore you with the details, but it is essentially God's gift to the parents and the families and the children and the students of Florida. And the state legislature was taking steps to eliminate it. And so I was there along with a group that I've been a part of, helped start Florida Citizens Alliance, urging the legislature to rethink that decision and to preserve the HOPE Scholarship. Well, they did listen, and they have taken steps to preserve the HOPE Scholarship. That's very good. See, we're pursuing righteous government. And the HOPE Scholarship gives real help to students that are harassed, intimidated, or threatened at school. And so we want to preserve that, and that's part of good citizenship. So I want to encourage you to make sure when you think about these things that you think about citizenship, not politics. There is no issue that I'm aware of that doesn't involve the pursuit of righteous government. There's no issue that people call political. Maybe I should refine it more and say it that way. There's no issue that people call political that doesn't have righteous ramifications or unrighteous ramifications from tax policy to obviously things like abortion to criminal justice statutes all of those kinds of things all have righteous or unrighteous components and so we need to be the best of citizens 
and work for righteous government. So I've been involved in that. I encourage you to be involved in that. There are easy, well, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't say easy. There are possible ways for you to get involved. It requires you to do something. You may need to think about would God put it on your heart to get involved and how might you do that? And and maybe we need to talk about some ways to do that in, in more specific steps. And I'll think about doing that. But the first part of that is to recognize that we're not being political. We're being good citizens. We're pursuing righteous government. And so when we talk to people about why we care about what's going on, we can easily say, it's not about politics, it's about righteous government. Then you can ask someone, do you think we have righteous government? Well, it'd be interesting to hear the responses that you get from that. Because some people will say, yes, depending upon where they live, maybe their local government is righteous. Maybe everything's good for them. I don't know. But some other people might say, well, certainly we do not. It's corrupt. Well, you can make a case for that. But what we as Christians want to do is pursue righteous government. And along with my concern for public school improvements and solutions in Florida, and we have been involved in that, and we've made wonderful steps in the right direction. But there are so many problems, at least when you look at it from a Christian point of view, in our public schools, and not just in Florida, but across the nation, that we need to face up to that as parents and pastors and grandparents and aunts and uncles who care about our children. School is not what it was when I was in school. When I was in school across the hall from my second grade class was a lady who taught us the Bible at church on Sundays. I knew what her, what she stood for and what values were hers and nobody ever worried that we would be corrupted by some of the things that are going on in schools today. Well, I urge you to go to the AmericaOutloud.news website, and I was just there, and I noticed an article that I didn't expect but wasn't surprised to see. And the article was about the student exodus from public schools and how it's hit record numbers, and it gives you the details in the article. I encourage you to go there and look at it. And I bring it up to say this. I'm not happy to have to say this. It doesn't delight me to have to say this. In fact, I wish I didn't have to say this. But if you have a student in public schools and you are worried about or concerned about or paying attention to the influences that they're being exposed to, I want you to know that no matter how good we are at getting improvements made in Florida or any place else in the country, the problems that are going to affect what your child learns, thinks, their view of life, their view of God will be affected by their time in school. And if you have any concerns for that, and if you notice any problems, I urge you, find an alternative education. The public schools cannot be fixed to satisfy you. That just is impossible. There might be good people in your school. I don't doubt that. There are hundreds of good teachers across Florida that are trying to do the right thing, that care about kids. It's not about those individual teachers. There are, in the same way, many administrators who want to do the right thing. I heard a wonderful story this week about a public high school in Florida. Couldn't believe they're doing what they're doing, but glad they are. So your school might be an exception. I don't even know for sure if the school I heard about is enough of an exception. But I want you to know that if you're concerned about your student, if they're struggling, if they come home with ideas that are clearly not biblical, You need to get them in an environment that will teach them the way, the truth, and the life. Because your public school just can't do that. It just can't. Even if they want to. 
And I, like I said, there are many good people. They just can't. A lot of reasons they can't. And it's not going to be fixed if we are able to fix it in the time your child will be in school. Even if your child's in kindergarten, you think, well, by the time they get to high school, it'll be fixed. I can assure you it will not. It just can't happen. It's, change comes too slowly. The ideas are too entrenched. It, it just won't happen. If you're concerned for your kid, find an alternative like hundreds of other students across the country. And that's where if you go to that article on AmericaOutloud.news, you'll see the headline is student exodus from public schools hits record numbers. You'll find out about that. And I want to encourage you to, to take every, every step possible. Your church can help. They may not realize it, but there are ways your church can help. And you can find it's affordable, it's doable. Home education has never been more accessible or possible for parents. And parents, don't think you don't know enough. You know enough because you know your child better than anybody and you love your child more than anybody. And with those two things, you have a huge advantage in teaching your child. All the evidence indicates that people who learn at home, students who learn at home, do better than any other education approach there is. Not bashing the other ones, not bashing anyone. I'm just saying if you care about your kids and you are concerned, take the responsibility, figure out how to do it. It's affordable, it's doable, you can do it and help your child get the best education and be prepared from a biblical perspective for life. It really does matter. Well, that's a little bit about citizenship, and I want to encourage you to take that seriously and to and, and to help each other. Uh, maybe you're a, a person like me, and my kids are grown, so they don't have a school to attend. My grandchildren do, so I can have some help with that. One of my grandchildren has the Hope Scholarship I mentioned earlier. Huge benefit. Huge. Can't even hardly describe the benefit that it is to that student. But you can help. And if you don't have children, maybe you can be part of the solution for somebody who does. Maybe they just can't imagine how they could add one more thing to their life, but maybe you could come alongside them and help them in some way that will make it possible for their child to be rescued from an environment that's not teaching them what they need to know or helping them learn the things they need to know. See, part of the problem is the public schools just aren't getting the job done. I, part of my involvement in this citizenship initiative and in this education initiative is to pay attention to what is going on in the Florida House and Senate and the legislation they're working on. I was stunned. I, I mean, I can't say it more strongly, but there was a bill passed by the Florida Senate that admitted we are not teaching our third graders in Florida to read at grade level. I mean, that's what it flat out said. They said in that legislation that even if a child cannot read at third grade level, the parents can insist that the school promote them to the fourth grade. Now think about that. They're admitting because they're giving the parents this opportunity that the kids can't read but that's okay. They can still be fourth graders. They can't do third grade material, but they can be fourth graders. I mean, this just doesn't make sense. And this is part of what's going on. So please pay attention. Please help your children. Can you imagine how a child feels? Can you imagine how a third grader feels when they know they can't read, but everybody's telling them it's okay? Well, it's not okay. And they know they don't know what they need to know. They know they're struggling how much better would it be for us to come along and help them actually learn to read? 
instead of the Florida Senate saying, well, we know they can't read, but they can go to the fourth grade if the parents want them to, why wouldn't the Senate say, no, public schools, you must teach these children to read. No excuses. They have to learn to read. How much better would that be for those children and those families? And if you find yourself trapped in that kind of a situation, get your child out and get help. It'll take a little effort, but it's doable. You will be amazed at how it will change your child and your family. Well, enough of that. That's a pretty long sermon. I think I've made my point. I want to encourage you to do that. I want us to think about a couple of things as we go forward in the program today. And, and I want to talk about this idea of intentional obedience. I've been thinking about that a lot. So I want to talk about that. And then I want to give you some tips on uh, what we might call Bible engagement. I think that's the phrase that's being used. And I like that phrase. That's a good phrase. And I want to ask you to challenge yourself when it comes to Bible engagement. And then really, when it comes to intentional obedience, not only do we want to talk about the concept and how that might relate to Bible engagement, but have you thought about the story of Jonah, the Old Testament prophet Jonah? His story is told in four relatively short chapters, and I want us to talk about Jonah and what that can, that, that story, his experience, can help us think about and how we can grow in God's direction and have increased confidence in God's trustworthiness by learning some lessons from Jonah. But before we go farther into all of that, I'm going to kind of lay a foundation with thinking about this idea of intentional obedience. It seems to me that most of us, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's just me, but certainly I grew up in the church, and, and, and it seems like what I was taught or what I caught more than intentional obedience was when God says to you, stop doing something, you need to stop. Well, you could make an argument that maybe I was the kind of kid that needed that kind of help. Uh, maybe. I don't think it was just me. I think it was kind of the environment we were in that God would say, just don't do these things. And if you're lying, for example, stop lying. If you're stealing, for example, stop stealing. And so we tended to view God as the one who restrained us and told us to stop doing. We didn't think as much about the start doing. Well, we were admonished on some things, but those were things like, this will be good for you. They weren't things like, this is a moral evil if you don't do them. And I think we need to think about this idea of, sure, stopping when God says stop. And if he says to you, stop, then please stop. But we also need to ask ourselves, are we willing to ask God to forthrightly tell us what we should do on purpose, what we should do intentionally? And I don't think we think about that enough, and I want us to, to kind of wrap our minds around that idea a little bit. And there's a story that Jesus tells that kind of helps us with that. It really gets to the heart of this idea of intentional. But it's a parable of two sons. And I want to read that to you from Matthew chapter 21, starting with verse 28. And I'm going to read this story from the New Revised Standard Version, updated edition. Verse 28. What do you think? Oh, and these are the words of Jesus. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. 
Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. Intentional believing him, intentional allegiance to Jesus. And that word believe can usually be substituted with the word allegiance to help us understand. So here we had two sons, and the first one, Jesus said, go and work in the vineyard. He said, I won't do it. How many of us have heard our sons resist our instructions? Well, we all know what that's like. Some of us who have been sons probably did resist our parents' instructions, sadly enough. But the first one said, I won't do it, but later he went. And the second one said, okay, I'll do it, but he didn't. And it was obvious in the story that it was the son that did what the father asked him, went to work in the vineyard, that did what the father wanted him to do. That was the commended son. Well, that's intentional obedience. He changed his mind and said, oh, yeah, I need to do this. And so he went and did it. So I want to know what it is that God might be prodding us to do, because we often think, well, I don't do X, Y, and Z sins. I'm not a terrible sinner. But maybe God's not focusing on that right now in your life. And maybe he's saying to us, I want you to do these things on purpose. I've been giving a lot of thought to that, and it seems to me that most of us don't really approach faithfulness to God with on purpose. So my challenge to you is to think about this idea of intentional obedience. What are the things that you know, maybe the things that the Spirit of God is talking to you right now about, that you need to do on purpose? I heard, I was listening to a podcast, a podcast was some months old, but the the, the conclusion or the information that they were sharing was as pertinent today as ever. But they said on the podcast they had seen evidence that people go to church about half the time these days. Half. Now think about what else you do that half would be acceptable. If you showed up to work half the time, is that good? You know, think about all the things. If you only washed half the dishes after a meal, if you only cut half the grass... How would that be? Well, I'm being a little silly here, but I want to make the point that what are we doing intentionally to honor God? And one of the things that I've said over and over, and I keep banging this drum, and I guess I will keep banging it, is that I want to encourage you to find a church that understands the Bible as being God's authoritative word, that honors the Bible, does what it says, respects its teaching, and follows it. Find a church and go there every week go to church without fail get involved not only show up on sunday but when you find that church find a way to serve what can you do to help that church do better you see if we're going to make a difference in the world it's going to be made through the church and so i want to encourage you to think about what can you do intentionally now there's another side of that intentional that i want to emphasize today since i've done the church thing a lot let's think about something different so let me ask you, and, and you don't have to raise your hands, uh, you don't have to, to look sheepish, just think about this. Have you ever struggled with anything in your life that you just would like to get over? Have you ever struggled, well, let's say, what might you struggle with? Have you ever struggled with bitterness? Something didn't go the way you wanted it to, 
And so you've kind of resented that for a long time. Or maybe someone did something and and it offended you and you just have a hard time forgiving them. Maybe maybe you have a maybe you really have a tr- problem with gossip. Maybe you just love to talk and the more you love to talk, the more you want to talk about people and all this stuff. Did you know? Or did I tell you? All this kind of stuff. And and there are people that this get caught up in that gossip chain. And and maybe God is convicting you about that. Maybe maybe you have a trouble with telling the truth. I, I don't wouldn't expect that, but maybe you do. Maybe you just you just shade things all the time to make yourself look better. Or or maybe maybe you have problems with anger. And you just get mad about things, and, and, and all of a sudden, out it comes. And, and then later you think, well, why did I act that way? I wish I hadn't. I, I don't know what you might be wrestling with, but I want you to think about, if you're struggling with some of these kinds of ideas with, with bitterness or the way you think about other people, maybe jealousy, maybe you're having trouble with this idea of forgiveness, or maybe, maybe it's something, not even any of that. Maybe it's you feel discouraged too much of the time. And you, and you just can't seem to get over that idea of being discouraged. Well, I want to challenge you with an intentional approach to that that I learned about recently, and, and many people have testified to this effectiveness. And I want to challenge you, would you be willing, would you commit yourself, you talk to God, you don't commit to me, you talk to God about that, to finding four times every week that you will Take a look at the Bible, you will read it, you'll think about it, and you'll respond to what it says. So what I mean by that is you pick your own plan. I don't have a certain plan that is the plan. There are all kinds of ways to do that. Maybe you like the parables, and so you'll find a list of parables, and you'll take a parable every day, or one or four days, four times a week, and you'll take the first parable this day, the second parable the next day, and so forth. I don't know that I'm prescribing a certain amount of time. Uh, you have to figure that out. If you're doing nothing and you start with five minutes, that's that's a good start. Maybe you need to do 10 minutes. I can't tell you that. I want to, at this point, simply say, will you do it? And will you take a look and read what the Bible says? Will you think about it? And then will you talk to God about it? So you don't have to read a long passage to to get an essential idea. Maybe you would even keep it really short and start with the Ten Commandments and read the first commandment and say, okay, here's what God says. Now think about, am I doing this on purpose? Am I putting God first on purpose? Maybe you'll start with the great commandment that Jesus gave us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And maybe the first day you'll think about, well, what does it mean to love God with everything I've got? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, am I thinking about God enough? Am I thinking about pleasing God? What is it that I can do to show that I love God? And back to going to church, there's one way. So you begin to think about that God says I need to love him, and if I love my children or grandchildren, I do certain things to demonstrate that love, what do I do to show God that I love him? You know, it's, it's a cop-out to say, oh, God knows I love him. No, just get over that. How does he know? He knows by what we do intentionally. So that might be. And maybe the next day you want to think about, well, it says love neighbor as 
myself? Huh, how do I love my neighbor? Am I doing intentional things when I'm out and about to love my neighbor? Am I holding the door? Simple as that. Or other kinds of things that demonstrate concern and love for neighbor. Well, that's the idea of, of you. Get the idea, think about it, and then respond. And you can ask God, how can I intentionally show you that I love you? Have you ever even thought about doing that? Well, that's the idea of Bible engagement. Wherever you choose in the Bible to read and to then receive that and reflect on it and then respond to it, you and God work that out. Maybe it's Bible stories. I think Bible stories are a great way to do this. Get yourself a Bible story book. Get a kid's Bible story book and read the Bible story and and let God speak to you through that and think about that and then respond to that. Maybe you read the story of David and Goliath and you say, wow, what do I think about that? And then you then you realize, well, that story certainly shows God is bigger than a giant of a problem that comes against us and against me. And maybe maybe God will show you that that you can respond to these giant problems by trusting him and developing faith that has absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And you'll begin to pray and thank God that the giants that come are not too big for him, and you're going to walk with him through these problems and intentionally intentionally take them on as you trust God to be the solution to those problems. Well, you get the idea. And I want you to think about this idea of engaging the Bible, receive it, reflect on it, and respond to it four different times a week. And I would encourage you not to count Sunday because that might not be the same. It might, but it might not be. Well, I'm Pastor Rick, and we're going to talk about Jonah and some more of these ideas and and about intentional obedience a little bit more. You stay with us, and we'll be right back after this. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells, and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. The buildup of spike proteins is dangerous to your health. Global Healing's foreign protein cleanse detoxes your body, removing the spike proteins, allowing your body to repair from within. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. CoFix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray, 
with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flu, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. Many voices, one freedom, united in the First Amendment. Our goal is to herald the voice of genuine liberty at AmericaOutloud.news. A place where you'll find the naked truth expressed with a patriotic heart. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Pastor Rick, and you're listening to Faith Is, where we understand faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we stretch in God's direction. We challenge each other to have that kind of confidence in God. None of us has arrived. We all are on the way. We're all helping each other. We're not here to point fingers at each other. We're here to challenge each other. And some of the things that I say may challenge you. Some of the things that I say you don't always know it, but they challenge me. And we need to encourage each other to move in God's direction. We've been talking about this idea of intentional obedience. And I said we'd talk about the story of Jonah. The story of Jonah is pretty simple, but it's got a lot of stuff in it. We're not going to get into all of it, but we'll get into some of the things. And, and I want to help you think through the story of Jonah a little bit. Now, I did mention earlier this idea of Bible engagement and four days a week. This is an example. If you want to take the story of Jonah, Jonah has four chapters. You could take a chapter a day. They're not long chapters. And you could read one, think about it, allow God to speak to you, and then respond to God out of the story of Jonah. Four simple chapters. That would be a week. If you do that very well, you might say, wow, that was good. I need to do another week. Well, you can do another week on the same four chapters. That would be fine. Or you might move on to something else. You do you. You follow God's prompting, but find those four times a week to receive what God says by reading the scriptures, reflect on it, and respond to what God says. Now, some of you might say, I don't like to read. We don't have to read long portions. That's one thing. And the other thing is, if you really can't stand to read, or if you get information or you are better served by listening, go ahead and listen. I usually say read because that's what we think of, but we have a lot of good tools for listening to the Bible. So maybe you want to listen to a portion of the Bible and reflect on that. I would, as long as we're going down this road, I 
sometimes reluctant to say this because I know people are going to react to it in the wrong way, but I'm really not big on most of the devotional books that are out there. They're very shallow, and they're long on the writer talking about themselves and short on actually engaging the Bible. So be very cautious about that. I think you'll do better if you engage the Bible itself and don't worry about a devotional assistance. You don't need that to start with the Bible. Just start with the Bible and let God speak to you from that. So, okay, so Jonah. Story of Jonah is quite simple. God said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh because that city is sinful and you need to preach to them and warn them that I'm going to destroy them and urge them to repent. Well, Jonah ran the other way. He was intercepted by a whale or a fish, depending on how your English translation translation says it. Most of the time it's a fish or something like that. We'll say fish for ease of understanding. He was intercepted by the fish and changed his mind. The fish was sick of him, put him back on dry land, and Jonah headed off to Nineveh, where he did preach and where the people did repent. And then Jonah was ticked, absolutely. He was upset, and he said to God, essentially, I knew you'd do that, that's why I didn't want to do this. Well, maybe that's why he didn't want to do it. Maybe there's other reasons he didn't want to do it, but he was mad, mad that they actually turned to God. Uh, That's a curious response, isn't it? Well, let me read just a few verses from Jonah chapter 3 to kind of set us on our way, and then we'll talk about some things. And chapter 3 is after the fish had put Jonah back on dry land. And we read chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord's message came to Jonah a second time. Go immediately to Nineveh, that large city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah went immediately to Nineveh in keeping with the Lord's message. Now Nineveh was an enormous city. It required three days to walk through it. Jonah began to enter the city by going one day's walk, announcing, At the end of forty days, Nineveh will be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed in God, and they declared a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. And then skipping to verse 10, same chapter. When God saw their actions, that they turned from their evil way of living, God relented concerning the judgment he had threatened them with and did not destroy them. So that's a little bit of the conclusion, you might say, of of Jonah in terms of the people of Nineveh. It doesn't deal with Jonah's reaction, but let's let's walk through the story a little bit and think about what might be going on here. Now, we know Jonah left his hometown and traveled down to the seaport city of Joppa, where he caught a ship to take him to Tarshish. Uh, Did I get that right? Let me see here. I'm He went down, yeah, Tarshish. Yeah, I I thought I had a little brain glitch there. Well, okay, so Tarshish. Well, now, the interesting thing is that Jonah lived in what we call the Holy Land. He went down to this seaport, booked passage on this merchant ship that was going the opposite direction from Nineveh. From Jonah's home, Nineveh would have been east and a little north. Well, he went south to get the ship so he could go west. And the port that he was planning to go to was as far west as you could go at that time. Now, we don't know exactly where it was, but we believe it was in the southern part of Spain, which was clear on the other end of the Mediterranean from where Jonah started out, and a long way from Nineveh. 
So is the story, is the issue running from God? Well, in part it is, because God said, I want you to go. And Jonah's, Jonah's response was, I'm out of here. And he went the opposite direction as far as he can go. Now, is the issue in Jonah that, that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? And, and could that have been because they were his natural enemies? They were vicious people, the people in Nineveh. The Assyrians were just awful people. They were cruel to the people they captured. And later, some years after Jonah, they actually did conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. So, you know, Jonah may have known something about those people and decided he didn't want to go there. And I'm not going to talk about the cruelty that they inflicted on the people they captured. It was vicious and brutal. We don't really want to talk about it. You can read that on your own. I'll give you one little idea of how bad the people were in Nineveh. They wanted everyone to know what they were capable of doing, and they used it as intimidation and a threat. Outside the city gates of Nineveh, according to one source that I read, they stacked human skulls in piles so that everybody that came into the city would know, this is the kind of people you're dealing with here, behave yourself. So, you know, no, uh, Jonah may have decided that he just didn't like those people, he didn't want to go. Uh, one of the lessons we ought to think about there is, um, you know, is that how we are? Sometimes there are people that do things that are enemies of Christ, enemies of the gospel, that clearly doing wrong. And, and sometimes we, uh, not be honest, sometimes we just want to ask God to, to smack them, to do something to get rid of them, to crush them, because they're doing wrong. And clearly the Assyrians were people that did wrong, but God's approach to them was to have Jonah go preach to them and get them to change. So do we want our perceived enemies, the people that do wrong in our day, to change, or do we want God to smack them down? Well, either result, I guess, would be helpful, but it seems that God, from his response to the people in Nineveh, would much rather repent of his intentions to crush them when they repent and turn to him. So we need to think seriously about that, you know. And, and it could be that, that Jonah didn't like them because they were so bad. It could be that he, he was convinced that what why bother? God's going to have mercy on them anyway. Um, now, you know, maybe the issue is, is do I want what I want or do I want what God wants? You know, Jonah clearly wanted what he wanted. And he took off. And do I want what God wants? That's a little bit back to this idea of intentional obedience. Do I want what God wants? Do you want what God wants? Or do you just want them to be crushed so you can win and you can be victorious? And yay, look what God did. Well, I understand he sometimes crushed the enemies of his people in the Bible. I get that. But certainly here, the story of Nineveh is God wanted to have mercy on them and help them. So let's keep following Jonah. He gets on the ship, and they set sail for Tarshish, going the opposite way as far as he could go. And God God interrupts the journey with a storm. Now, you probably remember the story. The storm blew in, and it was a vicious, brutal storm, so much that the sailors, the people on the ship, they were afraid they were going to be lost, that the ship was going to be overwhelmed by the storm, and they would sink. So they began to call on their gods, do all kinds of things, to try to stop the storm. Well, this was a common response in those days that was a, 
society, a culture that believed in many gods, and many of the people, most of the people, maybe all of them, had their household gods, we might say. They were territorial gods. And so they wanted everyone to call on their god, and perhaps they would find the god that was responsible for the storm, and they could get that god to stop. And that's why when they found that Jonah had not been calling on his god, they woke him up and said, hey, Jonah, call on your god. We're in trouble here, because they wanted all of the gods that they could possibly encounter to hear them and to change and take the storm away. Well, that was typical behavior. And one of the things that we should learn from that, and one of the things that that should be an enormous blessing to us, is that we don't serve a God that's capricious and might throw a storm, so we have to figure out a way to appease him. God is not a God to be appeased. God is a God to be loved. And he tells us who he is and how he behaves and how we should behave. And so we know how to intentionally honor him. Back to that intentional obedience idea. The poor guys on that ship, they didn't know that about their gods. They understood their gods could get upset with them at any time for any reason. And they had to do whatever it took to appease the god. A fearsome way to live and a fearful way to live. You could not have confidence in in the trustworthiness of that kind of God for sure. And so they were all calling out to their gods. When they got Jonah's attention and Jonah began to explain to him that he was the reason for the problem and he served the creator God, that even made them more concerned because a creator God was a far bigger problem in the way they saw things. And so they did everything, redoubled their efforts, but ended up, Jonah says, throw me overboard, that'll take care of it. And they did, after some length to do that. And he was intercepted by what we sometimes call Jonah and the whale, better understood as a big fish. And a lot of people want to spend a lot of time in Jonah about the fish. And I just want to touch on it enough to help us think about the fish and not get distracted by the fish. Many people have tried to come up with ways that a fish that we know about, a part of the created world that we experience, could have come along and swallowed Jonah and tell us how Jonah could have survived in that fish. Well, okay, fine, I don't object to that. I'm happy for people to work on those kinds of things and try to explain how Jonah survived in a fish. That's fine, but that's really not so important to the whole story. Because you read the text, and it's possible that God sent this fish, what we're calling a fish, to Jonah, and maybe God created that fish just for Jonah. And that fish didn't survive, and that was the end of that. It was, it was a one-off creation. We don't know that, but maybe. So let's not get too hung up on the fish. The important thing is that God really got Jonah's attention. He really did. He didn't let Jonah escape you know, see, when God catches up with us, uh, you, you think you can escape. No, you, you can't. Jonah couldn't escape. And uh, maybe we should even pray, God, whatever happens in my life, please don't let me escape your concern. Because God still was concerned for, for Jonah. He wasn't, he wasn't really out to get Jonah. He was just trying to get Jonah to do what he needed to do. And so he preserved his life. Sailors wouldn't have expected that. They thought Jonah was a goner. They just wanted the storm to stop. It would be interesting to talk to those sailors and find out how they reacted afterwards. We don't know from the story. They did attempt to appease God, and that's what they did in those days, but 
Jonah was taken care of by God. And after a period of time, the sick, the fish got sick of Jonah and put him on dry land, and Jonah headed off to Nineveh. Now, it's interesting, one of the things, we don't know exactly where Jonah ended up on dry land. We know he did from the story. But best we can calculate or kind of have an idea of is that Jonah would have still had a month-long journey to Nineveh. So it's interesting that Jonah changed his mind and agreed to do what God wanted him to do, but then he had a month to think about it and change his mind, and he didn't. How many of us, when we make up our minds, well, God wants me to do this, but then we think about it for a while and we talk ourselves out of it? Well, intentional obedience is making up our minds and saying, okay, God, I'm going to press through and I'm going to get this done. And that's what Jonah did. You might rightly say that Jonah did terribly wrong by running from God, trying to get away from him. But in the end, Jonah did what God said, and he had every opportunity to turn around, had every opportunity in that roughly month-long journey to Nineveh to decide he wasn't going to go there, but he didn't. And we need to pray that God would help us not to change our minds when we know what he wants us to do, so that we'll set about doing it and do it all the way through. All the way through. Now, he did get to Nineveh, and he did preach the message. Now, the city of Nineveh is described in interesting terms in the different English translations as a great city, and sometimes it's described as a large city. Well, let's make sure we understand that in the context of the times. We have large cities today, and we're not talking about our large cities being large like Nineveh. Nineveh, no ancient city, was as large as our cities when we think of a large city. So we need to, to understand that. We do know that the text tells us that it took three days for Jonah to go through the city. Now, sometimes people think that means it was three days to go from the entrance to the city all the way across to the exit. Well, that's probably not what that means there. What it more likely means is that it took him three days to go to all of the places in the city to make the announcement about God's judgment. In ancient times and in the city of Nineveh, we know this is true, there were places at the city gates and other places where people would make announcements and where Jonah would have been welcomed to stand up and to preach his message from God. And so probably what it means when it says three days is that it took Jonah three days to get to all of those, what the Bible doesn't call them this, but what we might call preaching points. And so he gets here and he proclaims his message of judgment that they need to, to repent or God's going to destroy the city and does that in all these places and it takes him three days to do that. So that's probably what's, what's happening here. It's also interesting to note that the people of Nineveh were, Nineveh were receptive to Jonah's message. They weren't, uh, how should I say, angry at Jonah. There's no evidence of that. They weren't driving Jonah out of ta- town, and we don't know. Maybe he feared that as part of the reason he, he fled, but there's no indication that that happened. They, they seem to be used to the idea that people would make announcements and pronouncements. And so Jonah was able to do that without hindrance, and he was very effective. Now, it's also interesting that in the scriptures, when a prophet would pronounce judgment, there were two aspects of that. It could be a judgment that was certain to happen, and there was nothing anyone could do to stop it. God had decided, and this was what's going to happen, 
boom, end of story. But there are plenty of times, and this is what happened in Nineveh, that God pronounces the coming of judgment in, a, in an attempt to get people to repent so that he doesn't have to carry out the judgment. So we see both of those ideas in the Old Testament. And here, clearly, God had used Jonah to warn them of impending judgment so that they had the opportunity to repent. And it's very interesting and important for us to notice that, that they did repent. Now, repentance is not appeasing God. That's not what a pen, repentance is. Uh, repentance is changing. When Jonah repented, he changed, and instead of running away to Tarshish, he turned and went to Nineveh, according to God's directions. Now, we, we often don't think about repentance in the terms of change. And I want to really challenge us to, to think about that. We often think, and, and I was taught this many years ago, I don't think that it's necessarily wrong. I think it's incomplete. But I was taught that repentance is sorrow, or sometimes it's referred to as godly sorrow for the things we've done wrong. Godly sorrow for sin. And yes, repentance is often associated with being sorry for what we've done. If we did something that harmed somebody we know and we shouldn't have done it and we know it, we often feel that remorse, that sorrow. And so sorrow could be connected to repentance and and maybe often is, but at the heart of this idea of repentance is change. And that sometimes people have trouble with. That also relates to this idea of intentional obedience. You see, if we, if you, if I, are going to learn this lesson of Jonah, we need to realize that God sometimes says to us, I want you to intentionally do this differently. I want you to intentionally start doing this, and it becomes intentional obedience, where we take an initiative at God's direction. Now, Jonah, as I said, he went in the wrong direction. He was trying to go as far away from God as he could. And and in his mind, that was probably a safe thing to do because in those days, the presence of God was associated with a place, not like it is today because the, the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, we understand that God's Spirit is everywhere. He had a little different view of that because God's presence was generally understood as being in the temple or tabernacle. In the Old Testament times, God had given that as, a, as an evidence of visual aid of his presence. And so Jonah probably thought, well, if I go as far west as I can and get away from God's presence, I'll be safe. Well, clearly he couldn't get away from God's presence because the fish intercepted him and he got put back on the right track and faithfulness and following God. So that's, that's an important understanding. But the real heart of what Jonah did was that he changed and he agreed with God that he would go to Nineveh. You see, when God speaks to us, the real heart of our response is, will we change and do what God asks us to do? Jonah changed direction, and then as a result of his faithfulness to God to preach to the people of Nineveh, the people of Nineveh changed their behavior, and God was merciful. It says clearly in the story of Jonah that the people changed. And God saw that. 
And they changed their ways, and God saw that, and he was merciful to them. Now, when God calls you and me to do something intentional to change our ways, and we shouldn't be afraid of God's challenge to change. I know a lot of us, maybe most of us, we get used to the way things are, and we don't think we can manage to change anymore. I understand that. God understands that. But if God comes along and says, look, I want you to do this, and you haven't been doing it, then he doesn't do that because he just wants to mess up our lives or disrupt everything. Now, we might think that's what he means. Maybe Jonah thought that's what God was doing, so he wanted to get out of there. But God comes along and says that to us, to you and to me, because he wants to make our lives better. See, that's what we want to find mercy with God because then we can have confidence in God and we can develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God and we can be God's faithful people. So go with God and be faithful. I'm Pastor Rick. We'll talk again next week.